Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series held on January 17, 2018, focusing on the new territorial tax system and anti-deferral rules. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, PwC's Tax Services Leader, Mike DeFranzo, a PwC tax partner focusing on international tax issues, Nini Dewar, a PwC tax partner also focusing on international tax issues, and Peter Merrill, a PwC tax partner and leader of our National Economics and Statistics team. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on the basics of the new FDII regime, or the Foreign Derived Intangible Income. There's an, another regime that's in place, and that is the uh, Foreign Derived Intangible Income regime, and that is in Section 250. Um, and that provision, uh, much like guilty, is a little misleading, and it makes reference to intangible uh, income. Uh, but it's, it's much broader than that, and we'll get into that a little bit uh, as we get through the how it's actually determined. A couple things. Uh, it is there uh, for... It's available to domestic C corporations. Um, again, sorry, individuals and, and pass-throughs, but you get left out on some of this. Um, but it also, when you look at C corporations, technically a REIT and a RIC are C corporations, but they are pass-throughs, and so they are also left out um, of the benefit here. Um, it does have a rate uh, that is calculated uh, through a deduction mechanism and it does change in 2025. Um, and I'll just kind of hit the numbers, but it's 37% uh, of, of the foreign-derived intangible income, plus 50% of guilty, it does tie to guilty. It is in some ways meant to just sort of be the mirror of guilty. It's for the onshore income as opposed to the offshore income of, of uh, uh, a multinational. So, um, let me just get a little bit to the framework here and make sure we have uh, time to get to the example. Um, bring it all together because it's going to bring guilty and uh, foreign-derived uh, intangible income together. It's, you look at what is uh, deduction-eligible income. It's the gross income of a domestic corporation. It excludes a lot of things, though, but it excludes the things that you would expect it to exclude. It excludes subpart F income. It excludes guilty, and I didn't use guilty as subpart F because it's 951A, it's not technically, but we're broadly going to talk about it as part of the anti-deferral uh, income that's coming up. It's also going to exclude, to the extent you have it, that DRD income that's coming up under uh, 245A. Um, it's going to, and, and this was specific to an industry where it kicks out any uh, financial services income as defined under 904D. And that is, of course, banking, but it could be more than that. It could be uh, certain leasing income that a company might do or other types of income that may fall in that category. And um, oil and gas uh, is another item that's targeted. And then importantly, but again, logically, it doesn't pick up foreign branch income. So it's not going to give you a benefit for something that's happening here in the U.S. when it's actually happening in a foreign branch. So those are the things that are excluded. Um, again, as I mentioned up front, it is really not intangible income. Uh, rather, it's looking at your gross income, less all of that, and then you go through a, a calculation um, where you are looking at a 10%. Uh, it's the amount, the deduction eligible income is the excess of 
uh, a 10% return on the CFC's QBI. So I had a hard time getting all of that out, but what I want to make the point here is again, fairly quantitative. It's not quite as quantitative as the guilty provisions because you're not dealing with the foreign tax credits and the haircut and the other things that we're working through. But again, it is a very quantitative exercise as you're going through, you're having to exclude income, um, you, you're determining your gross income, you're excluding all types of income, you're coming back to a number, and then you're taking the number over in excess of 10%. So it is going to take a lot of spreadsheet work or a lot of tools uh, to get through the calculation of, of these numbers. Um, when you start thinking about, okay, what then is foreign derived? So you have to start figuring out, well, what is foreign derived? Of course, it's not domestic to domestic sales. Um, but if you start looking at it has to be a sale to a foreign person for foreign use. Now there's some real questions about what is foreign use. What if I sell a product uh, to a, a foreign third party who then takes that product and converts it into something else and then they sell it back to the U.S.? Does that mean it wasn't foreign use or do I get to look at the concept of it was manufactured in the foreign jurisdiction and I don't know where it's going to go but it's a different product? And is that foreign use? So there are some open questions, I think, where we can draw some logical conclusions today based on our understanding of, of foreign use for subpart F or something, but there are some open questions here. So you have to have that, uh, uh, certainly to have it. Um, it, again, does not include financial services income. So to the extent you're looking through and you have, even though it may be a transaction that might be a sale, if it is structured in a way that it falls into 904D and can be characterized as financing uh, for financial services income. It's just not going to qualify. And, and I guess, Mike, when we talk about sale or sold, um, mm -hmm. it, it, there's a provision that provides that it actually includes um, license and... Correct. Right. It would include license, but again, whenever I start to think about license or leasing, leasing transactions or other transactions, I've got to ask the question, um, Actually, what was that? Was it a sale transaction or was it some sort of a financing transaction? Right. Things that I'm not always the best at determining, but we have some people here who are uh, really good at determining was it a, was it a sale or, or would it be uh, uh, financial services income? Okay, uh, I talked a little bit about the, the foreign use already. Um, and then we have the, the foreign-derived intangible income is that foreign income, you know, that, that sort of comes from all of this calculation. Um, and it, it uh, really is this really quantitative number that we're pushing to. You're going to be looking at your guilty income and your FDII income. And we have an example that Peter's going to take us through. And then I think we'll come back and talk a little bit about uh, the decisions that people are going to make. I mean, once we get through the example and we have a what seems better, we'll talk a little bit about whether people start to bring that property back into the U.S. So we have a very uh, simplified example of uh, FDII. It's the example on the right of your screen. Um, it's called Onshore IP. So uh, this is a company that has the IP in the U.S. and it's generating um, uh, returns on it, presumably royalty uh, returns. Um, from um, a foreign um, uh, party, and the foreign party is, uh, will be considered to be using that uh, IP outside the U.S., so that royalty income coming back uh, is potentially eligible for foreign-derived uh, intangible income uh, benefits. 
We made this really simple. Um, there is no QBI here. So this whole 100 royalty, we're just going to assume uh, is intangible uh, income, uh, called, you know, the deduction eligible intangible income, and it's also foreign derived. So it is FDII, foreign derived intangible income. So this is good income, and uh, with the uh, 37 or so percent deduction, this gets you down to a 13.125% U.S. rate instead of a 21% rate. So that's pretty good. That's what the example uh, shows us, is we have a 13.125% rate on this $100 uh, royalty. The question comes up, um, would it have been better to have had that IP offshore, something which is often the case under present law, but will it be true under the new law? So on the left-hand side of the screen, we have an example where the IP is sitting offshore, uh, and it's generating $100 of income to the offshore entity. And then the question is, columns A, B, and C, well, what is the foreign tax rate uh, on that income? Now, this is really going to determine uh, which is uh, better. So in uh, column A, we have 0% foreign rate jurisdiction. Good if you can get that. Uh, B is 13 uh, and a quarter, uh, a little bit higher than Ireland at 12 and a half, and then C is uh, 15. Um, so you know, this could be a rate in a patent box, uh, which could you know, get you down into the single uh, digits, um, or it could be a jurisdiction that maybe doesn't have any income tax to get you very low. But, so there are a variety of possibilities. And what you'll see when you look at the column A, column A, there's no foreign tax. So all you have in this example is the guilty rate, which is 10 and, and a half. Well, that is uh, better than 13 and a, a quarter. So taxpayer with that uh, fact pattern is actually better off having the IP offshore. Uh, if the foreign rate's 13 and a quarter, uh, then as we saw before, that's where your guilty just zeroes out. So you just have the foreign rate, you're at 13 and a quarter. That is the break-even uh, point, as it turns out. If you can have a foreign rate on your IP um, that is less than or equal, well, less than 13 and a quarter, better to have the IP offshore. This is very high level, but just, you know, kind of conceptually, better to have it offshore. On the other hand, if the foreign rate were 15, uh, then you would have no residual guilty. You just have the foreign tax. That's 15. That's higher than the 13 and a quarter. So uh, what caveat should we add to this? Because uh, right now, the simple answer is, well, look, if the foreign rate on your IP is less than 13 and a quarter, uh, go for keeping the IP offshore, perhaps, rather than uh, bringing it back. Expense allocation. Right? We saw that that can uh, cause you to have guilty tax uh, liability even when the foreign rate is above 13 and a quarter, so, or 13 and eighth. That, so this example is highly simplified because we didn't have expense allocation. Remember that there's also domestic expense allocation against FDII. Have to think about that uh, as well. Another very important thing to think about uh, is this FDI provision may not have a long shelf life. We don't know, uh, but it's likely to be challenged in the World Trade Organization, and it's not uh, compliant with the BEPS rules on patent boxes. So there may be some uh, uh, measures that other countries will threaten to take against uh, the U.S. Peter, I, I want to pick up on the last point you just made. So I continue to get a lot of questions, um, and they're rolling in today from a standpoint of questions here as we're going through this, as to international reaction to some of these provisions. And FDII specifically, I know you've had some discussions, you've seen some things out there, um, and you referenced sort of longevity of what's going on from an FDII perspective. W what do you see happening based upon experiences or anything else you may be hearing from, from the global side? Sure. Um, for those of uh, us that have been uh, around the tax policy world for a while, uh, we re remember the saga of Fisk ETI, uh, which was challenged uh, around 2007. And, 
Um, sorry, 1997, and by 2004, seven years later, uh, it was uh, repealed uh, as a result of the U.S. losing uh, effectively two challenges uh, in, in the World Trade Organization. The issue was, uh, was it a, an export contingent income tax subsidy, so a lower income tax rate on exports? Um, you know, facially, this has that same characteristic that, you know, it may be perceived as a lower income tax rate on export uh, income. Uh, if a challenge comes, which I think is likely, uh, I think five finance ministers have, have already uh, publicly indicated their concern about this matter. I expect that there will be a challenge by the EU, maybe other countries. And if we were uh, to lose that, then it would give the other uh, countries that complained the right to impose countervailing duties, you know, sort of put tariffs on U.S. exports, you know, of agricultural things, whatever, things that would get politicians' attention yeah. and would cause politicians to, you know, if that happened, to think about, you know, eliminating uh, the regime. Okay. Helpful. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.